years and got here just in the nick of time. What does that make us? Big damn heroes, sir. Ain't we just? Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM, the film and TV radio show where a handful of film enthusiasts shoot the breeze about all things film and television. I'm Marcus E. Ako and I am really buzzed to be talking to some of the filmmakers in the Paris International Film Festival 2022, uh, which is running from February the 10th to February the 20th. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk to them. Hi, I'm producer Dave and I too chatting to some of these filmmakers. It's been a great time. So I'm looking forward to the start of uh, the festival. And yeah, can't wait for you to hear some of the interviews as well. Yeah, and we're going to jam pack all of them because there are a lot of them that we're talking to and we want to try and get all of them in as quickly as possible before the festival starts. So enough of my rambling. Let's just jump straight into one of the first interviews. So producer Dave, take it away. listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And together we're here with the, uh, the directors, uh, the director, and I believe one of the producers from the film Four Days to Eternity. Uh, please tell us your name 
And can, can you tell us the name in the native language that it has on IMDb? Because I have it as Four Days to Eternity. And I checked that when I'm doing my research on IMDb, I didn't want to butcher the, the pronunciation. So I'd like you to please do that for us. Sure, we will. So uh, the German title is uh, Vier Tage bis zur Ewigkeit. And I'm Konstantin Korenschuk. And I'm here together with Simon Pilaski. We are both uh, the writers, directors, and producers of this movie. Exactly. Excellent. Completely dual. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Konstantin. Welcome, Simon. Uh, the uh, You're not brothers, but I was going to call you the uh, Cohen brothers. <laughs> you're, not, you're not brothers. You're not related. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's see. Now, let me see who I'm, I'm going to throw this to. Konstantin, let me throw this question to you. What is Four Days to Eternity all about? Well, the movie, um, it's a historical survival drama combined with uh, thriller elements. And the story is based on a real existing legend from the 19th century about a young girl called Idilia Dapp. Um, the legend uh, tells that she made a journey on a steamship with her family on the Rhine and then she disappeared traceless on the castle ruin. So 12 years later, some people found her skeleton and her diary where she wrote uh, last entries before she died. So it's a very dark, mysterious case. Nobody knows until today what really happened and if it happened at all. And our plot deals with the circumstances of her disappearance. And we made a tough, claustrophobic, but also melodramatic and thought-provoking elevated genre film with international appeal. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, Constantine. Simon, let me throw it to you. Since you wrote, directed, and produced this with Constantine, what uh, inspired you to take this up to be a story that you wanted to tell? Um, very close to the city where we grow up is uh, the real castle called uh, Lahnstein at the Middle Rhine Valley. And uh, where we heard about the saga of the disappeared woman, Idil Adab, we thought that could be very interesting for a basis for a feature film. And for some years, we thought about how we can tell this story. And then we started to develop a script. And at the end, we find out that uh, the combination of this saga and the love story between Idilia and the Abyssinian actor Caven, a performer at Human, at some called Human Zeus, are yeah, was for us the goal and the fundament of the of the of the plot and the story. Yeah. Excellent. So that's what pulled you towards it, um, and you you wrote it with Constantine. Um, uh, just looking through your IMDb credits, uh, this isn't one of the first projects that you've worked on together. What gave you? And I'll throw this question to you, Constantine. What gave you the? Uh, what uh, um, sort of inspired you to work with someone else? To direct, write, and I mean, producing, yes, fair enough, but directing as uh, in itself, uh, what inspired you to direct this with somebody else as opposed to taking it on your own? Well, you know, uh, um, we were filmmakers uh, in a city which is completely not usual for filmmaking. It's a small city uh, in Rheinland-Pfalz, it's called Bad Kreuznach. Um, that's the city where we met as filmmakers uh, 12 years ago. And it was a complete coincidence because uh, he was making some movies, I was making some movies, but uh, we never have joined, joined forces until then. And then uh, we made our first 
short movie. It's called Der Sternenberg. It's an homage to our company name, Sternberg Films. This movie had a budget of 30 euro and it has won the third cash prize of a film festival, which was 150 euro. So uh, the budget was recouped five times <laughs> and this small but sweet success story uh, was the um, fundamental step of our cooperation. Excellent. And it, it, one of the things I've been very interested because in, as soon as I saw that it was a dual directorship in this, and one of my the examples I gave was uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, how they work on all of their projects, with the exception of the very mo the most recent one uh, where Joel did it on his own, the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, you know, they've worked on all of their projects together. I've always been very interested in discussing with duo directors to find out how that collaboration actually occurs. Because I, I know for myself personally, I would be very, um, I, you know, I have my own ideas of how things would go. I want to go in one particular direction. And uh, unless the other person is pretty much lockstep with me, it's going to grind at me where I need to sacrifice or compromise some of my own ideas and feelings and thoughts about doing a particular shot or project. Simon, how do you get to work with Constantine? Feel free to say whatever you want to say right now. Constantine, can't say anything. Feel free to tell us, how do you do that? Okay, okay. Um, I mean, at, at, the, at the beginning, there, there's the idea of the script or of the story. And yeah, we are we're sitting together and, and uh, uh, thought about everything and uh, do a big uh, uh, yeah, brainstorming and that's that's the base and then we discuss uh, uh, every idea and I think we are very critic uh, at ourselves and that's uh, I think that's the the way where we do the complete production directing and also script that we are not uh, uh, too 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 nice or too friendly to the other but uh, but a, a little bit too hard maybe sometimes but I think that's uh, that's uh, the goal for the good teamwork. Um, and I think a lot of, of things that we do are, are fit together. Uh, I mean, at the beginning, uh, uh, one guy of us do the, the, the first uh, part of the script and then the other, and then we change the parts and uh, read it and discuss about, and uh, like this, the, the complete process uh, works. And also at the, at the film sets, I mean, uh, a lot of times there are two or more actors and uh, we do it like this. There's uh, constantly, for example, is uh, uh, working with one actor on the set, and I work with the another actor on the set, and so it's it's very efficient and very uh, yeah, it works very good. I think so. Yeah. Okay, and that's on the directing side. So, Constantine, how do you handle the writing side? Because again, you both wrote the script together. Um, what were your techniques with writing with a partner? Again, in the past, I've had uh, opportunities to write with other partners. And uh, you know, so, some have worked, some have been uh, very um, efficient with the way I've done the work, with the way we've worked together because we're lock sync, we know what it is we need to go with. And some others have just not worked at all. What techniques did you two use to make sure that you remained lockstep together to get this project done? Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting to say is when we write a script, we never sit together in one room. So everybody sits apart at his own and writes uh, the part of the script that was um, mentioned to him. So first and second one. Uh, but of course, this work takes place on the, on the basis, um, which Simon told right now, it's first the idea, it's the plot structure, 
it's the character structure. Uh, these are the basics of drama, dramaturgy, dramaturgic elements. And uh, these things we decide both together, but the writing itself, everybody writes his own part of the script, then we exchange, then the other uh, criticizes the other part, then we exchange again. And this process of writing and exchanging again, again and again can take up to 10 times. Excellent. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we are talking with uh, the directors, the writers, directors and producers of Four Days to Eternity, Konstantin Korenchuk and Simon Pilarski. I hope I pronounced your names uh, correctly. That's good. (laughs) Uh, They're telling us about their film, Four Days to Eternity. I'm not going to give the German pronunciation of the title, uh, but it is in the Paris International Film Festival, which is running from the 10th of February to the 20th of February. Producer Dave, you have a question to ask. Yeah, I just want to know how long it took you to complete the feature. Uh, all together uh, for years, and uh, it was it was a really problem to make the film because uh, we, as production company, concentrate on the concept of elevated genre film. This means uh, that an established, well-known genre is combined with a unique, innovative, and sophisticated idea or element which hasn't been told in any other film before. And everything about the production process of this movie was so unusual and so exceptional uh, that nobody believed in it. So we have a genre film in Germany, we have a historical setting, we have big set constructions, and we as producers, we are not even 30 years old at the time of shooting. So uh, the movie was rejected by um, everybody. And then we were quite lucky to get production funding from Hessen Film and from a private investor who helped us uh, um, to, to um, finance and finish the project. So it took you four years. What carried you through those four years to get the production finished? I mean, you obviously faced some challenges there and some maybe falling off of motivation. What kept you on track? I, I think the, 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 the story is the, the main goal to get uh, through this long time. Uh, but what's also uh, very hard or what takes the longest time of the complete production was the financing. It's uh, always the same story, I think. So because in Germany, it's not always very easy to produce a, a genre movie because there are a lot of, of dramas or comedy stuff, but not genre movies like this. And yeah, uh, it was also hard. I mean, at the end, we have a, a budget under 1 million euro. And we have a lot of historical locations. Uh, uh, for example, there was a, a location called the, the Felsenmeer. It's a valley full of, of stones and rocks. And it was uh, at the end a very logistical nightmare because uh, we have to put every piece of equipment by hand from the completely crew to the several locations. And yeah, and uh, I mean, it's a complete historical movie. We have uh, take place in the, in the castle. And at the end, we we uh, look at every castle in complete uh, Hessian in, in Germany, but we don't find any castle that uh, yeah, fits to the story. <laughs> and so we build a complete castle from scratch and in the studio. 
and also uh, do, do a lot of miniature work. So we built two big miniatures of the castle for some shots, uh, yeah, outside shots or wider shots and do it at the end uh, together in the compositing and the post-production of the movie. That, it sounds very <laughs> intense with the amount of work that you need to be doing. And uh, I, I honestly can't wait to see this film because of the scale, uh, you know, the epic nature of how you describe this film. After it shows in film festival, in uh, Paris International Film Festival, have you already secured distribution or is that something you're working towards? Uh, we did. We have a German distributor and uh, we have a, a world sales company from uh, Las Vegas uh, doing the international sales. Exactly. Fantastic. So do you, uh, do you know when we can see it? If, for those people who are not able to see it at the Paris International Film Festival, um, do you know when we will be able to see it either uh, on DVD, on streaming or uh, in the theaters? Well, in Germany, uh, the movie will probably start in August or September this year. Uh, when the start in other countries will be, um, we don't know for the moment. So it will depend. I mean, the international sales, they will start now at the EFM at Berlinale. Uh, and um, only then we will know the definite countries and release dates. Fantastic. Constantine, Simon, thank you very much for joining us and talking about your film, Four Days to Eternity. We wish you all the luck uh, at uh, Paris International Film Festival. And we definitely want to have you back on the show to talk more about this project. We can spend a lot more time diving into the details as to how this epic was built. I would love to ask tons of questions about filming the castle and building miniatures, etc. Uh, but we'll definitely love to have you back on the show. Thank you very much for having us. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I'm here with the filmmakers behind the uh, documentary at front, uh, front Stage and Back. In fact, I won't talk about it at all. I will let the filmmaker introduce himself and tell us more about this uh, film. Tell us your name and what is Front Stage and Back about? Um, so, so I'm Charlie Williams, um, and I was the uh, director of the documentary Front Stage and Back, which is. Um, about the struggles of a New York actor in his mid-50s um, who's been in hundreds of films that no one would have seen. Um, so that's what it's about on the surface layer. I always like to use my hero Louis Theroux's phrase where he says a film, it's what it's about, what it's really about, and then what it's really, really about. So I, I like to try and frame it like that. Um, so that's what it's about on, on, on the surface. And then I hope it's also about what makes us who we are and what makes us do the things that we do. And then wrapped into that, I hope it's more about um, performance and the presentation of self and that duality and that relationship between when we are performing to an audience and we're aware of the audience watching us versus um, who we are backstage, more private moments when we have more time to ourselves. So the film trying to explore that relationship. And Charlie, I'll, I'll let you introduce for us uh, the uh, star of your documentary. Please go ahead and introduce us. And this is Theodore Balukas, um, Theo, and he was the uh, willing participant. Good morning. I uh, filmed him for two years, muddling through life, and it was, uh, yeah, quite an experience. Theo. 
And so that's that's an amazing feat. I mean, you, you've you've carried on following Theo for two years to get this documentary done. Uh, Theo, let's let's get you uh, talking about um, what um, convinced you to allow Charlie to follow you around for two years to get this project done. Sheer madness. <laughs> I I can't account for any of it uh, being anything short of just seriously daft because. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I'm a risk taker. What can I say, Marcus? And, um, I was somewhat flattered. Um, and, you know, when I recognized past the sort of the gloss of, of the objectivity, subjectivity, um, that I actually had to perform my life. Um, it was a little daunting, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, Charlie's so amiable and we got on well. And most of the time it didn't feel like we were doing anything really, but um, hanging out. It's because looking at your IMDb credits, you have over 130 different acting credits yeah. to your name. And as Charlie- only five, only five of which matter to me. Oh, okay, let's go with that. You've said only five matter to you. Um, what five? I'm being a little apocryphal, but I mean... No, but you've, you've, th you've thrown that. You've, you've thrown what I'm that. Saying is, no, no. What I'm saying is, you know, despite, you know, a plethora of, of credits, you know, much of it was that I was a working actor and I had to pay the bills. And I mean, early on, I was... I was really learning my craft and the, the only way I felt I could do that was to just work often and, and really learn my way around a set, et cetera. And that did help. There's no question. I'm, I'm expert as a result, but you know, uh, all of that abundance really yields a very tidy crop. And um, you know, as it, as it, as it probably should, you can't possibly have every harvest be a golden year. And so among the many titles, I would say probably no more than 10 are, are something I'm proud of. Uh, there, there are tons of actors. I'm, I'm, um, I'm being one of them who understands exactly where you're coming from, where you want every project that you're, you're in to be a success. Um, and, yeah, and Marcus, some of them were, were not even projects that I that I had a, any kind of um, negative t feeling toward from the get go. I mean, I, in fact, almost all of them were things I, I was always hopeful about. But the proof was in the pudding in the editing or the the way I was treated on set or any number of the variables that we calculate in, you know, sort of reminiscing and thinking about the parts that we've enjoyed most. And then there are those that I just thought that I excelled at versus others I, I was grossly miscast. Yeah, yeah, and I can see exactly where you're coming from. Uh, Charlie, I want to ask you particularly, what made you want to do this documentary? Well, I, knew, I met Theo, um, I was the editor on a film that he did called Bag Boy, Lover Boy that, that did very well, it was in Fantasia and, and, and got some really good reviews. So I met Theo through that and... Um, know how much of a, a character he is and how interesting his life is and at that time I had been looking at a, a, a book by a social theorist sociologist called Irving Goffman who likened social life to 
actors on a stage where they're pre presented, as I said before, a front stage self when they're conscious of an audience and a, and a backstage self. And I was looking for, I hadn't made a documentary in some time. I made a documentary about a town of guitar makers in Mexico many years ago, but I hadn't made a documentary of my own in some time. And those kind of factors kind of came together and a mutual friend of ours, the executive producer, Andres Torres, was also helping me develop the idea. And we just thought, Let, let's, let's do it. Uh, let's do it. So that's, uh, that's kind of, and Theo is just a man of, of contradictions and, and he does all these crazy things and interesting things. And also he says something about, we're all familiar with the big film world, what's on Netflix, watched in the cinemas, but we often forget that there's a whole other world of filmmaking and uh, that's an interesting place really. And New York is a, the perfect kind of field ground to explore that. So I, I, I guess that there are the reasons. Yeah, I would, I would echo that, say that New York is the, is the locus uh, of, a, of a very fervent, um, flourishing film community that in many ways mirrors its Hollywood counterpart, just in terms of um, sheer production and um, the cohesion of the community and its activity and its, and its sort of impact on the lives of those of us who are in, I mean, it may not mean much to most New Yorkers, but those in the independent film world are very much a, you know, a cohesive group of people who attend each other's screenings and, you know, and that I sort of rose in, in the ranks of all of that is, you know, kind of funny to me. I mean, really, Marcus, I happen to come to acting at, at the exact time that digital technology came to the fore. And because of that, that dovetailing, really enabled me a career. I mean, I don't think that I could do this now quite so successfully in terms of sheer volume and all the other things. I mean, my natural tenacity, perhaps, but I think the average actor, I, I don't know. I just think the technology was so new and everybody was getting their hands on a camera and everybody wanted to be a filmmaker and everybody was making something, including the art world, which is how I came in through painters who were picking up cameras and deciding to make video art. And I myself migrated toward more um, linear traditional cinema from the art world. That was my own am ambition, just because I enjoyed performing. But it, it was a, just a great moment in time. And as you're, you're absolutely right, and I do agree with you with the fact that uh, with digital technology or you know, uh, di uh, the digi digital world and film world clashing together, it did open up more opportunities for people to, as you said, pick up a camera. These days, you have films, you have uh, big film directors like Steven Soderbergh shooting entire feature films using the iPhone just to open up the path for people to try and do the same thing. Um, as an actor yourself who'd been through as many projects and seen that sort of collision happen, what kind of advice can you give to other actors who are struggling to even make that first step and get a job where they can, you know, just get a on an independent movie to be able to get that first you know the thing is i think you have to remove all sense of, of snobbery toward what you will and won't do um you know i've told younger actors this and they've scoffed at it a bit they were looking for fast tracks you know do student films i mean how else can you cut your teeth on on filmmaking if not for i mean you're nobody you're not you have absolutely no accomplishments to show for can you really be 
that disparaging of student filmmaking when you yourself are, are a person of, of no credit and, and no proof of, of talent. So cut your teeth on, on, um, uh, on student filmmaking where you can really, really exercise every fiber of the craft and take those risks and do all kinds of things and hope that perhaps they'll go to a shorts festival. More than likely they're gonna show up in, on YouTube or something else or Vimeo, or, which is fine because you're building a reel. Without a reel, you can't really try to pursue an agent or see casting directors and be taken seriously. You know, you need, you need, this, you need this gestalt of work that shows your range. So I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to, to start with student filmmaking because, because the castings are constant. There's got to be some type where you're needed, uh, where your type is needed, and you can go after so many different types of parts just to see whether or not you can pull them off. Yeah, you, you're right. And you mentioned the fact of uh, festivals like this one, uh, the front, uh, front stage at back is going to be playing at the Paris International Film Festival, which is running from the 10th of February to the 20th of February. Uh, Charlie, just one question for, to, before we wrap up. Uh, as you followed Theo for two years to do this documentary, what did you learn from experiencing or seeing the world through his eyes that you didn't know before you started the project? Um, well, I've, I've, I've been in New York myself since 2010, so I, I'm quite familiar with that uh, film world that Theo operates in. I hadn't seen some of the projects he's, he's been in have been quite bizarre, and I ha they were kind of a revelation to me. Um, but more in terms of what I learned, it was, I wanted, I wanted to be a ghost. I had this kind of very ver verite, purist, direct cinema kind of angle I wanted to go for, which was to really not be there and just be an observer as much as possible. But I quickly realized and learned that that is not really possible, particularly with someone like Theo, who is very forthright and very talkative and has a lot of say and a lot of opinions. And he, um, he directly addressed the camera and my presence is always felt in every scene. So I started out wanting to be not there. And um, in the end, I, I learned that I had to be, um, I was, I was very much present, but I wasn't engaging or, or talking too much. But um, So that's kind of the main thing I learned, just a bit of realism about that. But in terms of sharing the time with Theo, just got, got to know a, a fantastic, interesting, inspirational, tenacious person and um, and go into environments and situations that I would never otherwise have been in, which was fun and, and, and a privilege. So I'm always going to be grateful to Theo for opening himself up and being so, so willing. Um, and um, I have a portrait of him on my wall to attest to that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it was it was it was a great experience. And we're both very, very well. I think Theo is moderately happy with the film. I, I'm very happy with with how it's turned out. So I hope I hope people enjoy it. And it sounds it sounds like a very deeply personal uh, documentary project. We hope we wish it all the best at the Paris International Film Festival and all the other festival uh, festivals that it goes to on its run. Uh, Charlie Williams and Theo Valukas, thank you very much for joining us on Shoot the Breeze to talk about your documentary at front stage and back. We hope to hear from you pretty soon. Uh, on, on the progress of your, your work. Appreciate it. Thank you, Marcus.
You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we are joined by the filmmakers behind one of the films at the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, please tell us your names uh, and tell us what the film, The Underground Sistine Chapel, is about. Antoine, if you don't mind, I'll throw it to you first, and then you can introduce Johan, and then we can go from there. Hi there. Uh, yeah, um, The Underground Sistine Chapel is the movie uh, um, telling the story of, about a street artist with uh, Anonymous, is uh, Parisian guy and evolved in, in street arts. It's about 10 years now. And um, the movie focuses on the, the main uh, last artwork he's, he made uh, during the confinement in Paris. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a um, strange movie for, for people because it's making mixing art and uh, NFT uh, topics. Basically, uh, Johan Grignou is co-director of the, of the movie with me. Excellent. Welcome, uh, Johan. So for, uh, from what Antoine has just mentioned, you mentioned that it was, it, did I get you, did I hear you right? It's an anonymous French artist. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, exactly. So I guess the equivalent in the UK would be Banksy, right? So Banksy is uh, is also an anonymous street artist who's become uh, world famous for his daring uh, artwork on the streets of London. And some, most recently, one of the things where he did, where he, he, he set uh, an artwork to be shredded at a national auction or an auction in America and so on. So this is sort of, you have the French equivalent to the English Banksy who performs. Does he do the same sort of, uh, the same, or he or she, we don't know if, if they're anonymous, obviously it could potentially be uh, uh, a woman uh, or somebody whose gender um, is uh, non-binary in gender terms. Um, so with this particular type of art that's being done, can you describe some of the examples of art that has been done by this anonymous artist? Um, basically, uh, uh, people is, is quite famous for one main artwork, uh, which is uh, called uh, La Liberté Guidant le Peuple. Uh, in English, uh, maybe I could say the, uh, the freedom leading the people. Um, uh, it's the main artwork in, in Paris that been famous uh, all around the world during the the gilet jaune crisis and uh, his style is basically basically uh, <clears throat> remixing old um, classic paintings and uh, mixing it with uh, modern style and uh, introducing uh, elements like iPhones iPads etc into uh, real classic and famous uh, paintings and uh, also is introducing some uh, little elements uh, talking about uh, the the money uh, or the power of uh, governments, etc. So it creates some uh, masterpiece, uh, really um, talking about news on, or the current uh, era, but with uh, uh, some uh, classic reference. Ah, fantastic! Yeah, he made a, another uh, like Le Radeau de la Méduse uh, in French, so the raft of the Medusa, I think, in English, and this piece is. Uh, very particular because uh, this piece is on the ro on the on the top of the um, the foundry, the foundry where we we shoot the movie. And the, I know that the BBC uh, make a, a subject about uh, about uh, this piece, in particular. But uh, yeah, it's it's good. Excellent. So, what drew you to specifically to uh, to do this film about this artist? Um, we met uh, P-Boy uh, about uh, four, four years ago, three or four years ago, and we 
just discovered his work in streets in Paris. Um, we decided to connect with him because uh, it was really powerful uh, in streets. Like, uh, I don't know how to say, but uh, each piece uh, got a real impact uh, uh, in Paris. And uh, we decided to discuss around, okay, what's your what's your mood? How do you, how do you work, etc. And we had the idea to to make something. Uh, we didn't know if it can be uh, just a web series or uh, a short movie or a big movie. And uh, yeah, we were kind of friends after a few months discussing. And uh, uh, now it was one year and a half ago, uh, we tried, we started a new discussion and he was preparing something like a huge project. Um, and we decided to make a movie about it because it was uh, kind of the major masterpiece uh, for for him um and it uh, it was about uh, uh, a new piece called um called um, the underground Sistine chapel because it's uh, a new um, remix about uh, uh, the Sistine chapel but in an underground places uh which is uh, an old foundry and uh, yeah, it's quite unknown place, and but a major masterpiece there. Excellent. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Akko. And I'm producer Dave. And we have the filmmakers, the, the, the directors of the Underground Sistine Chapel, uh, Antoine Breul and Johan Grignoux. Am I, did I pronounce your names correctly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, perfect. That's okay. <laughs> perfect. That's that's good. Um, so your your film uh, as you it's documentary following uh, the artist, uh, the French artist. Um, it, it, with regards to your own experience uh, with art and artwork, could you give us a little bit more, uh, Antoine? Let's start with yourself. Uh, you sort of your you've already told us how how you were drawn to the project. What is your involvement a little bit more in art uh, before you started making this film? Um, basically, uh, I'm um, I'm art director since uh, about uh, ten years now, but mainly working for artists in uh, music industry or um, and TV um, TV industry. And when we started uh, Samurai Cup uh, with uh, Johan Grignou, it's uh, our company, we decided to create something like uh, the future-proof agency to defend artists all over the world, um, mostly independent and underground artists. And we had the idea that, okay, we need to to create some uh, awesome content, but also uh, like movies, like uh, short movies or feature movies. But we also have to invent a new kind of agency that is owned by artists. That's why Samurai Cup is born. And on this uh, last uh, last project, we we splitted our work um, mainly because uh, Johan is uh, an amazing director and uh, filmmaker, also dronist and post production guy, etc. And uh, my main uh, focus is on writing and also director as a, a team leader, etc. So we are both complementary on, um, on our project. That's the way we work. Yeah, okay. exactly. We, we, we just uh, shared the work. Antoine is more like on the, on the writing and me on the technical part uh, about the film. Excellent. Uh, Producer Dave, you had a question? Yeah, I just wanted to know, how did you finance the f- making of the film? 
Yeah, but yeah, yeah. We can explain the the strategy we had because that's a, a world first. Uh, basically, we were also uh, in the Samurai Cup team. We got um, experts uh, on blockchain technology and. Uh, around all distributed protocols and um, the idea of the project was to to explore a new way to fund uh, a feature, long feature film movie and we're the first f uh, movie um, which is only crypto funded and uh, funded with nfts so we created some uh, original um, nfts that uh, represent some extracts of the movie or uh, making off of the movie etc and uh, so we found it the, the, this movie like this with this uh, way and we are quite exploring many many ways to fund indie independent artists and we think that maybe blockchain technology could be really interesting in the future in fact it was one of the questions i wanted to ask because we've had a filmmaker who came in bijang tong uh, who came on a few months ago who was talking about his film which was involved he he had his film um he used his film as an nft product as well, talking about blockchain to try and help, uh, you know, independent filmmakers actually raise funds. So uh, for somebody who doesn't know much about NFTs, and we have, we've had a number of people who've come on who are experts who say even they can really explain NFT. So can you dumb it down for someone like me, because I'm dumb. Uh, it, how would you use NFT to be able to fund your film? Basically, um, to understand the NFT, uh, letters are a non-fungible token. But okay, we don't care about this. Uh, this uh, this name. Let's let's say that um, NFT are uh, rare uh, rare uh, items items. So basically, um, that's the first time in history that we can send something to someone on the internet, and I don't own it when it's sent. For uh, for years, internet was uh, ju just copy and paste. When you're sending a, a track uh, by email, you still got the track, and uh, that's the first time we got something like that, that can be uh, unique and uh, and rare. And uh, if I, I send it, okay, it's only one piece in the world, and uh, you own it. And so, for the twenty last years in internet, we we started uh, to explore a Kickstarter or many way to fund projects. Um, but here we have something new that is allow people or community to to co-found something and to be co-owner of the product or the service or whatever it is. So I think for for artists, it's going to be really interesting to explore it as soon as possible because it's really uh, new. Um, it's only about four years now. But for example, if you are a, a band and you want to, to produce something like a, a rap album and, and no one wants to produce it, maybe you're just your fan will be able to help you and to, to say, okay, guys, I, I, um, I got uh, create pre-sales and we will buy it. And for example, you can imagine that this community is now your co-producer, but in a peer-to-peer -peer way, there is no uh, Kickstarter, Kickstarter or whatever the platform. So you are there directly connected to your to your community that's the point really interesting okay so with that in mind so that that sounds great and it, it it's it's it sort of you have your own fan base being able to raise the money or uh, the finances for you to make the film and you don't have to rely on a kickstarter approach which with kickstarter one of the downsides i mean kickstarter is great for independent filmmakers um because you can reach out to people before you start to make the product Whereas with this method, if I understand you correctly, it's great because you're able to 
make the project with your own fan base already and they're funding it to go for it. So does that mean that you, and if it, please correct me if I'm wrong, you make the film and you use the making of the film to raise the money through NFT because if you're saying you shoot a behind the scenes bit of footage and that is now classed as an NFT product that you then sell to your fan base, your fan base can then buy that particular. So is that how it works? Uh, not really all the time because we, we didn't choose the, the simplest way to work. <laughs> Honestly, uh, our project was quite uh, different from the, the current uh, models, but uh, for main for artists, the main way to do it simply is just to create like a pre-sale and say, okay, uh, there is no the, the the item is not ready now, but I will uh, we will produce uh, we want to produce this project and let's describe it and etc. And um, you will allow people to to give uh, cryptocurrencies to this project, and when you will be ready to release the the final album, uh, they will receive it uh, directly. Uh, a, a piece of it or uh, an NFT corresponding to one track, for example, or whatever it is. So uh, you can have like the, the real pre-sale mod like um, on Kickstarter when you have to to uh, have people early. So that's the, the same uh, way is possible. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Antoine and Johan, for joining us. You've been listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. We've been talking to the filmmakers of the film uh, the Underground Sistine Chapel, which you can see at the Paris International Film Festival, which is running from the 10th of February to the 20th of February. Antoine, Johan, we wish you all the best with your project in the festival. And uh, maybe we, we want to do more and more episodes about NFT, helping with funding uh, film finance. So we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about that and more of the progress of your film. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm producer Dave. And we're here with one of the filmmakers behind the film uh, For the Love of Noise. Please tell us your name and tell us what For the Love of Noise is about. Hi there. Yeah, I'm, my name is Alan Cross. I'm the uh, co-writer and director, editor of the film. Um, it was a chance meeting, really, that started the whole ball rolling. It was in lockdown. Uh, I was I was painting my front door, believe it or not, and um, I went to the 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 screw fix to get some uh, varnish to paint the door. And I bumped into Kevin on the way back, and um, we'd sort of known of each other, but we didn't really know each other that well. So he was walking towards me, and I thought I'll say hello because I've I've seen that guy around town a lot, you know. And we bumped into each other a few times at the arts club, and. Um, yeah, I, we stopped when we were chatting and I said to him, so what, what, what do you do? Uh, no, he said to me, what do you do exactly? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm looking for, you know, different projects to, to, to produce. And he said, oh, I've always wanted to make a film. And I said, oh, what about? He said, oh, uh, about music and sort of the Brighton scene. And he said, I'm quite a big part of that. And I said, oh, I used to be in a band. And he said, oh, what band was that? And I said, Chack back in the 80s and he goes oh my god Chack like he was a complete 
fan of what we used to do and um, which was a you know it was a nice surprise for me because it's kind of a long time in my past and um yeah we just got chatting and and um so I said well let's let's just do it it was difficult because all the venues at the time were closed you know nobody was doing any gigs and lockdown meant that nothing was open so the backbone of the film is really interviews with people that are protagonists on the scene you know people that have bands or who are involved in making noise producing noise and it was really a kind of a journey into the scene and a kind of um examination exploration of of how these people see their music and how how music doesn't necessarily be it's not necessarily defined by you know traditional rules music can be all kinds of things to all kinds of people so yeah hopefully the, hopefully the film sort of celebrates that in some way we love on the show um documentaries about music we had um one of our favorite documentaries was um it was this is love which was about um the forgotten soul uh, meisters in america who died recently um we love that documentary well and but we we love music documentaries on our show and uh, we would be looking forward to watching for the love of noise um you mentioned it as you're a filmmaker this chance meeting is what brought uh, the concept about and you started interviewing doing talking heads with other other people within the music scene uh, what music in particular influences you as a filmmaker to do this particular project what music influences me oh my god i mean i've i started a relationship with music way back when i was about 12 and my dad used to run a youth club i mean even before that i mean my dad was a, a music fan he used to have the old 78 records he had you know old Elvis Presley he had um wake up little susie and you know all those old rock and roll hits on on 78 records the old the old bakelite records and i remember you know when we first got central heating putting leaving one of the records on top of a radiator and it melted and it sort of dripped down the radiator but um i used to record the top 40 for him when he was doing the youth club as a teenager i would sit and press the pause button when the DJ spoke and then release it and I always used to try and release it on the beat so then it was kind of that's almost like me starting to be a DJ and then I went into DJing but I I've, I've, I've loved yeah you know, I used to listen to Al Green I used to listen to all the old uh, you know all the jazz singers and I've loved um funky music anything with soul or funk in it is something that appeals to me I mean I I also listen to classical music I listen to world music I used to just have a habit of going into a record store and finding something really obscure like panpipes from the andes or something like that you know so anything that's got a a kind of tonal texture to it i found fascinating when i was a kid if we went to the biggin hill air show i i had incredibly sensitive hearing so i used to have to tie a jump around my head so i, I think i've just always loved sound and music and I worked as an engineer at Jacobs Farm Recording Studios and we recorded everything from Test Department to Cliff Richards you know it was I've, I've never had any sort of musical snobbery or barriers to stop myself listening to something and I, I for me it's it's like, like I say it's a sort of an exploration it's a, a a journey into the soul of the person that's made it it's a language isn't it music's a language so you you got to listen to what people are saying otherwise you're not listening to you're shutting yourself down i think so absolutely and that that was one of the one of the themes behind uh, the the movie i was i was trying to think about one of the guests that came on the show uh, a while ago uh, Renee yeah. Edward and she and she did the documentary one note at a time 
which was focused oh. on the uh, jazz singers in the in, in, in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and how they were carrying on with the music, but yet regardless of all the hardship that they faced, um, yeah. it's it still the music still connected them. And you got to see that living, breathing creature that is music actually uh, perpetuate throughout the, the documentary. It's, 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 it's a fascinating documentary. You should definitely, definitely recommend that everybody gets a chance to watch it. I'll check, I'll check that out. Yeah, I'll listen. But your documentary, Alan Cross, is for the love of noise. And yep. you, you mentioned earlier that you were a musician and you're now a filmmaker. So the work that you've done in filmmaking, is this the first time that you've explored uh, doing something about music in film? Or have is this sort of a return to what you loved? For me, it's all connected. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I studied architecture and while I was at college, I was in bands and did various things. And uh, my band chat, we got signed to MCA, but, but it's, it's all connected. You know, the, the rhythm of a building or the rhythm of a piece of music or the tempo and the rhythms in a painting or in a, even in a screenplay, everything, you know, all these things, I think it's the structure of music or the structure of any piece of art there are parallels that connect all the, all different art forms. So I don't really sort of separate my, my work as a musician to my work as an artist and, and in other areas. You know, I do other, I work in other fields of art. I do animation, I do filmmaking, um, I write and I, I paint and I draw, you know. So it's all connected. I think there's music in everything from my perspective and I try to keep it that way. But for, yeah, for the love of noise, we were really trying to... Un uncover a, a scene that's quite an underground scene because it's quite um, alternative and it's almost it's almost rebellious in a way because it's rebelling against what would normally be called music and what normally defines music you know some of these people are taking the insides of a of a cd player and you know shorting wires and making scratching noises and it's just it's it's fascinating i mean i didn't i actually didn't really i wasn't really aware that this was going on but it's you know when you as you as you watch the film you you kind of we try and take the viewer through into the that world and so they can experience it firsthand Ke kevin as you know is a huge part of it as well because he is in several bands on the scene so he had unique access to the main players and some key protagonists and performers on the scene. So it was it was great because, you know, we were basically interviewing a lot of his friends in Brighton. Absolutely. And as, as soon as we get his audio sorted out, we can get him on to the interview and ask uh, from his point of view how the project came about. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Alan, um, so, so it seems some of the stories that you were hearing from the bands really struck you. Can you give us one of the stories that really stuck with you? Maybe one that if it was, it's in the film, or maybe one that didn't make the cut that you can tell us so we can get an idea of sort yeah. of what they experienced and what you experienced getting their stories. One very early interview we did with um, Maureen Halomas, who's um, been a part of a band called Polishang Kwan Band, which is a, an all-female band. Um, they're quite extreme and some of their music is incredibly raucous and a lot of screaming and distortion distorted noise etc and uh, in her interview which we did fairly early on she was explaining how as a young teenager she'd been at a friend's house and they had a computer which was quite 
different in those days, you know, because not many people have one. And they had a dot matrix printer and it was printing and it, and it made that noise that kind of goes. And she was just saying that at that moment, she realised that for her, that was music. It was really, it really struck her how much that sound for her was saying something and it really spoke to her and so yeah that, that I mean that really summed it all up really for me I think it was yes you can hear it's like you're hearing something in the sound that's speaking to you and, and you can't really explain why that is it's just something that speaks to you like a clarinet or a piano or a guitar might speak to somebody else yeah and and, and that's kind of one of the things I wanted to ask as well uh, and I was, uh, it's the the title of the documentary for the love of noise what influenced that particular titling for the documentary oh um originally we were thinking about calling it pushing the walls which is what we called our production name in in the end but um we had pushing the walls and then it was in the name of noise so it was pushing the walls in the name of noise was was one of the original titles and then at the last minute it just between us, I can't remember how it came about. We just sort of came across um, for the love of noise, and um, I mean, there's actually a graphic somewhere of, of the original with the original on it. But yeah, it's one of those things that just evolved, and it sounded good. It, it spoke. It sort of says what it is, and and also the people that are that, that are involved in the scene are you know it's it's a real um, labour of love, and it's something they're completely committed to and dedicated to. You know, so. It, it, it works. It's the right title, I think. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, so your your documentary for the love of noise is playing at the Paris International Film Festival, uh, which right. is running from the tenth of February to the twentieth of February, uh, and so it'll be in contention with a number of other documentaries, other projects. Uh, have you secured a distribution for the film yet, or is this something that you are hoping to get from the festival run? Um, no, we haven't. We haven't secured any distribution yet we've I mean it's not long since we actually finished making the film so yeah fingers crossed <laughs> somebody might pick it up from the uh, festival we've got um we've all, we've also um sent it to uh, the Sheffield Doc Fest for a UK premiere so hopefully they'll accept it I mean we haven't we haven't actually heard back yet but yeah there's a few few other festivals in the pipeline that we've submitted it to so you know, it's, Paris is the first one, and and it's just great that they've accepted it. I'm I'm completely um, overwhelmed and excited. Actually, it's going to be great. And wish we wish it all the success in uh, Paris International Film Festival. We hope it gets into the Sheffield uh, Sheffield Doc Film Festival, very prestigious film festival for documentaries. And we hope that we get to see more and more of your work. And hopefully, we can get to chat to Kevin uh, the next time we try and organize a, a session yeah, with yeah. you about the documentary so alan alan cross from uh for the love of noise thank you very much for joining us speak to you next time thank you very much and and there you have it some of the filmmakers whose films are going to be running in the paris international film festival which is going from the 10th to the 20th of february 2022 uh, hosted and uh, directed by the film festival is directed by our good friend jenna suru give her all the love go check out the film festival check out all the wonderful films that are going to be there and see all the emerging filmmakers who will most likely become household names in the next few years i uh, want to say thank you all very much for having sat down and listened to shoot the breeze on resonance 104.4 fm i want to thank resonance fm for giving us the opportunity to keep on doing this show over and over again you have been listening to shoot the breeze on resonance 104.4 fm i have been marcus e Ako. 
I'm still producer Dave. Dave, thank you very much for listening. Speak to you all next time. Goodbye. Bye.